Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a total delight to be here. Harrogate Crime Festival is an inspirational crime festival for all crime writers, particularly those of us from Scotland and involved with Bloody Scotland. Um, I have to say that when I heard that I was going to be allowed to chair this panel event, I thought, this is my dream panel. A, a, a writer of forensic fiction gets to sit on a stage with four experts in the field. How wonderful is that? So um, you can talk amongst yourselves, but I'm really up here doing it. You know. um, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to, I'm going to introduce our panel, but they're going to say more about what they do. I'm not going to try and and explain that to you. They're much better at doing that themselves. But before I do that, I thought it would be a good idea to give you a little background. How on earth did I end up? They're the experts. How did I end up writing forensic fiction? My key character is a Dr. Rona McLeod, who's a forensic scientist. And how she came about was this. My father was detective inspector in Greenock Police Force. I had three daughters. If you don't know Greenock, it's the west coast of Scotland, and no one there is very tall. He had three daughters my height, and he was six foot three and a half. So you were a policeman's daughter in Greenock. It was very difficult to get away with anything, because there's big Willie Mitchell's daughter. Um, however, one of his fears in life was he would turn up at a scene of crime, and he would discover that one of his daughters was either a victim or a perpetrator of the crime. And, and it was that thought that was in my head when I wrote the first book, uh, which was called Driftnet in the series. Um, and I thought, someone turns up at a scene of crime and thinks that the victim might be something to do with them. And I thought, well, I'll make it a man uh, with angst and a drink problem. And then I thought, my neighbor in Edinburgh Ian Rankin seems to have cornered that market. <laughs> so I thought, well, I won't do that. And I had been a teacher for many years, and one of my best mathematics pupils had gone off to do forensic science, which this is before CSI. So in those wonderful serendipity moments writers have, completely ignorant of the subject, I thought, I'll make it a woman, and I'll make her a forensic scientist. It was the best choice I ever made. I've had such fun with it. So that's how Rona McLeod came about. But of course, Rona and writing Rona could not happen without me relying on people like this, who actually manage, they give me the facts so I can marry the forensic fact with the forensic fiction. So on our left, I'm, they're going to take over from here now. On our left, we have Lorna, then we have Neve, and then we have James, and then we have Martin. And one after the other, they're going to tell you the area of forensic science that they work in. And then we're going to have what I would call a conversation between them. Uh, and I think you'll be fascinated by the topics that they will cover in this conversation. I'll hand over to Lorna now. Thanks very much, Lynn. And thank you all for coming along today. Um, you're most welcome. And it's really exciting to be here with you today. 
I'm a forensic soil scientist. Now, you might wonder, what on earth is a forensic soil scientist? Well, I'm a soil scientist that studied geology and then done a PhD in soil science. And what I do is I've applied that science within the context of forensic science, which means it pertains to the law. So it really ranges from helping police with the intelligence and also providing that evidence in court. So the intelligence can be helping police with searching for missing people, so using the landscape clues about soil and vegetation to where somebody might be buried, so whether there's a hump, which depression, or broken bits of, of twig, that sort of clue in the landscape to help search. Clues are left behind within the soil that tells us there's been a body there before, like cholesterol that is left from the decomposition process. And then taking the soil that's on the soles of your shoe and looking at that and comparing it with where it might have been at a crime scene. So there's many facets to forensic soil science. So we'll maybe talk about some of these things later. Thank you. How do you follow that? Um, <laughs> um, my name is Neil McDade and I'm, I work at the University of Dundee at the Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification. Um, the areas of forensic science that I'm particularly involved in are related to forensic chemistry. That's my background is as a forensic chemist. And my areas of expertise really sit across four different domains. I'm a bit greedy and a bit of a polymath. Um, one of them is around fire investigation and fire scene investigation. Um, and the kind of work that I would do would look at identifying the nature of that fire scene, the cause of the fire, where it might have started, what might have started it, what the different aspects of <clears throat> the development of that fire might be. So why did it develop in a particular way in a particular building? Um, what other forensic evidence is recoverable from fire scenes? And also then whether or not we can detect ignitable liquid used in fire, so things like petrol and other things that are used maybe to accelerate those kind of events. Um, so that's one aspect and area that I do a fair bit of my professional casework in. I also do a lot of work around drugs and in particular the manufacture of drugs. Um, and one of the aspects of research that I lead looks at making uh, clandestine drugs like ecstasy and methamphetamine and new psychoactive substances and things like that. So we make those within our research group, under license of course. We make those <laughs> within, it's great because you get the opportunity when somebody says, what do you do? And you say, well I do drugs. And you go, but I do it legitimately, so it's okay. Um, so we manufacture those kind of materials in order to try to understand their chemical characterization. Can we answer some of the questions the police ask of us, which is, can you say how this drug was made and whether two different samples could be linked together? So we can do that to a certain extent. The other area I work in is around terrorism, and in particular looking at the detection of explosives and how we measure them, how we detect them, how we measure them, how we determine what they are. And then the final area of work that I look at is around the enhancement of fingerprints. So how, when you put marks on tables or marks on paper, how we can use some chemistry to enhance those marks so that we can visualize them and see them and then do the comparison. So the casework areas I work in are mainly drugs and fires, but I also run a big research team and our research team look at trying to develop new techniques across those four different areas. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> if I say my name's James and I'm a forensic pathologist, <laughs> I hope you don't think I need some sort of therapy for a compulsion that... <laughs> The dead body, I would say, is mine, <laughs> against all the rest of them, the dead body. <laughs> I work 
only as a pathologist uh, or have done in the north of Scotland. And you all know what that's like because you've watched the television constantly. <laughs> You'll notice that I'm actually quite a small person. I'm not tall. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Actually. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I need to say almost no more. Uh, the, I'm a small person and I've got shiny shoes. I thought I'd better get that over with now because some years ago on this very stage, I was at Mrs. Cleves about a couple of the inaccuracies in her books, uh, mainly to do with the overpayment of forensic pathologists. <laughs> and as a result, she noted in some of her other books, where I seem to have become more famous than I ever was in real life, that I was a small man <laughs> and had shiny shoes. <laughs> what wonderful people crime fiction authors are. <laughs> Anyway, uh, to be completely serious, uh, mine's the dead body, and for a quarter of a century, I was the forensic pathologist in the north of Scotland until I retired two or three months ago. And uh, there, on the instructions of the Crown, I was responsible for the pathological investigation of all victims of sudden and unexpected death. And that, of course, includes victims of homicide, victims of suicide, victims of accident. Uh, as well as people who have died of natural causes when we are trying to establish that indeed they did die of natural causes and that there is no particular hazard associated with that as opposed to the more suspicious activities. And then, of course, we produce the reports and we give our evidence in court. The critical thing that I'm going to start with, though, and they did warn you that it would be difficult to keep me quiet. They did. Is that they did. I'm actually just a very small part of a team and I emphasise the body's mind. I have to rely on all these other people working with the police, and in Scotland, of course, for the Procurator Fiscal. Uh, in England here, uh, it would be other agencies like the Coroner and the Crown Prosecution Service. But in Scotland, for the Procurator Fiscal, who galvanises all our activities together. So my name's James, and I'm a forensic pathologist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Uh, my name's Martin Hall, and um, I'm... Uh, um, an entomologist. I work at the Natural History Museum in London, and it's a great pleasure to join you here this afternoon. Uh, why am I here? Basically, as a young child, I uh, ran around with a net catching insects, and I have a, a passion still for insects today. Um, I didn't intend to be a forensic entomologist, but I specialised in blowflies from my um, PhD onwards. I grew up in, um, in, in Africa, where I was surrounded by insects. Uh, I used to bring them into my mosquito net rather than keeping them out. <laughs> and um, so I've developed a real passion for insects. And uh, they're ubiquitous in nature. And so they are in attendance at many crime scenes. And they're attracted very rapidly to crime scenes by the body that James has just been talking about. Uh, and just to illustrate that, we have some studies at the museum at the moment where we're using uh, pig heads mainly because they um, mimic humans very well. Um, they are readily available from a butcher's shop. No one really likes to eat them, so uh, we use them. And, and on the eighth floor of the museum, uh, we've been putting them out the last few weeks, and uh, within 30 seconds, flies, blowflies are arriving on these pig heads, uh, and they will examine them, they'll feed on them, and some of them will lay their eggs on them. And that's really where my role comes in to help to help James uh, to establish a, a minimum time of death. Really, I'm trying to work out how long those flies have been on a body. 
Um, and that can be very helpful, not just in cases of um, dead bodies, but live bodies too, because there are insects that don't hang around and wait for you to die. There are those that will infest you while you're still alive if you have some trauma. Um, and so I can help um, at, uh, for example, um, with estimating how long uh, a child might have been neglected if there are uh, maggots in the wound of the still living child. And that's frequently actually what I do with the um, RSPCA and other animal bodies where you have a neglected animal which is still alive but is maggot infested. We can help work out how long that's been infested on. So that's basically my role, but there are many different ways that insects can be useful in a crime scene. And I'm happy to talk about all of them this afternoon. I thought we might begin with the, the, this whole business of the discussion of, of the, the time of death. Um, you know, what we've seen... <laughs> on <laughs> Mark! <laughs> Because it's, you know, it, it causes so many sort of traumas for writers as well. Um, but would you like to talk about the, how, how do we establish the time of death? I, I, I wouldn't like to talk about it, Lynn. I'd like to rant about it for a little while. <laughs> but the take-home message for all of you here uh, and for the crime authors and for everybody else is we just can't do it. We never could. There it is. It cannot be done. Uh, the, there are scientific principles, of course, about the degradation of temperature in a body in a particular environment. And presumably, you can all go back to physics was fun or whatever it was they tried to persuade me when I was a child of about 12, where you take a cube of, of uh, copper and you heat it to a certain temperature, and then you watch the temperature degrading, and it does it in a particular way, and it's always the same. At least the scientists mm. will assure me that it is. But the unfortunate problem is that the human body isn't like that. The human body is a human body, and it doesn't lose temperature like that. So trying to extrapolate the temperature degradation of the body into a specific number of hours since that person died really has no scientific basis at all. It is not reproducible. All that we can say is for sure that once the body dies, it will cool to the temperature of the environment. And then, interestingly enough, just to throw you a wee bit, the temperature will go up again a little because of the microorganisms and all the other things that are now degrading the human body and producing their own heat. Now, where is the reproducibility about that? And all the other changes, and there's been a huge amount of energy and resource and money uh, spent on trying to capture time of death. I was reading one of these older uh, detective novels recently, and we had a time of death which had to be between five minutes to nine <laughs> and ten minutes past nine. No hope. Never, ever. The window of opportunity for death to occur is between the time that the body is last reliably seen alive and the time that it's found dead. <laughs> You see, you have to have a very, very big brain, you know, brain the size of a planet to be a forensic pathologist, really. You know. So last reliably seen alive, and I think we've all got stories of people, you know, who were seen by 120 people uh, wandering down the street in, let's say, Fraserborough, way up in the northeast of Scotland, when I can be absolutely sure that he was lying in my fridge. He may have been alive in my fridge, but I don't think so. <laughs> but I'll tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't wandering about the streets of Fraserburgh. 
So last reliably seen alive and found dead, that's the window. And sure, a bit of common sense and use of some of the other elements, uh, temperature degradation, formation of uh, uh, post-mortem hypostasis, the staining after death, rigor mortis, some of these things. Now you, can, you can draw some conclusions which amount to if in a temperate climate here in Harrogate, you know, in the summertime, if a body is found skeletonized, then it didn't die in the last two or three hours. <laughs> and if it's warm and, and almost alive looking, then it didn't die a year or two years ago. So there's a bit of common sense, but honestly, bottom line, and I think Martin will probably tell you some more, but the bottom <laughs> line is we can't do it, we never could do it. It's a fiction uh, and it's a nuisance. And just to underscore that, the Home Office did eventually uh, send out uh, some instructions to their pathologists in England and Wales, but they're always generous enough to let us see some of these instructions that said, don't do it without extreme caution because mm -hmm. it will lead to miscarriages of justice if the, if the whole prosecution is centred upon a time of death which has been estimated by a pathologist. Yeah. Won't do. That's wonderful. Mark, talk, talk to us a little bit about the whole way that the blowfly thing, because I find that fascinating. I, I, I was emailing someone because of the book I'm working on at the moment. Um, you said 30 seconds for the flies to arrive. And one of my questions was, what if there's a whole buzzing mess of them? What do you do when you get there? You know, do you swat them or do you... <laughs> obviously, you want to catch some and all the rest, but how do you... Walking I'd, on to a scene like that, what do you yeah. do? Well, I'd only deal with the adult flies if there weren't any maggots, you know, the, 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 the young flies, if you like, the larvae of the flies on the body. Um, I mean, if there were no maggots on the body, but there were lots of flies around, that was sort of uh, fitting with what you're saying about the fact that, say, a body was still warm. And clearly, if there's no uh, larvae on the flies, but there are lots, sorry, on the body, but there are lots of flies around, that body's only been there for a short amount of time. Otherwise, it would be covered in fly eggs. And do you but, catch the flies? Well, um, yeah, we do, um, just to see what's there, um, so that we can compare the maggots on the body with the flies that are around. Because if they differ, it might give you an indication that the body's been moved and introduced into a new area, uh -huh. and those flies haven't yet got onto it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I completely agree with you about the, the timing of death, <laughs> because um, uh, I, we, I've been reading Keith Simpson, who pathologists his uh, autobiography, and uh, biography anyhow, and um, he talks there about the riddle of the Lydney maggots, where um, at the crime scene, he said, um, he's not obviously as cautious as yourself, he said, this body's been dead for eight or nine days, but no more than 12. And he based that solely on collecting some maggots. And uh, when you read on a bit, he said, I thought it was safe to assume that they were Clifera erythrocephalus, which actually is a made-up name, isn't it? It's not really <laughs> that far there. Um, and um, he stuck by his uh, um, story the whole way through. He hadn't looked down a microscope to identify the insects. He hadn't worked out what the temperatures were at the crime scene, etc. And the jury actually accepted his evidence rather than three alibis that the defence wheeled out to say that the person had been alive when uh, he said or his maggots uh, said that they were dead. Uh, we're much more cautious today, I hope, and um, uh, so, as you've been saying, biology is variable. It's not like the physics, um, you know, cooling of a piece of metal. It's, it's incredibly variable. 
um, even in a, you know, as a scientist, sometimes I'm almost reluctant to get involved in forensic work because you only have one body there, whereas we like to replicate things. Now, I'm not into serial killing, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, this is why on, in, on the museum we've got lots of heads up there rather than just one, um, just to see what the variability is. And so when I write a report for the police, I take this variability very much into account and give quite broad uh, range of uh, times. But even that, 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 sorry, yeah. that variability is, it translates across a whole load of the work that we do, and to, to use that analogy of replication, that's what scientists like to do, that's what makes us comfortable and makes us happy, um, because we can look at the variability within a set of repetitive measurements. In one of the bits of work that we did, we set um, 70, no, 69 different compartments on fire. So 69 little rooms, reasonably big size rooms, um, and we burnt them in exactly the same way, with the same fuel, with the same ignitable liquid, um, the rooms were done out in exactly the same configuration, and we got 69 different answers. Mm. And that mm. gives you an idea of the variability of what we're dealing with. Yeah. So in forensic casework, we look at one. We have, we have a, a sample size of one, and trying to get us to make an inference in relation to what does that mean in the context of a set of circumstances is something we'll always be really cautious about, because we have to be. Um, I was just going... Uh, don't want to interrupt you, but I was thinking, you know, the two ways we, we as writers try and get rid of bodies or people <laughs> do is to bury them yeah. or to burn them. And uh, you said a little bit about that. And I wonder, that's a, quite an interesting idea. What, what can we do that works? And how do we, they get found out? If you want stick, to talk about Stick this. them in the hole that the police looked in first. <laughs> stick them in the hole that the police looked in first. <laughs> there, there you are. That's, that's it, so... <laughs> I'm what, sorry. What about the... Well, that's, talk to us about the buried things. Well, that, that's the complexity, just to add to both what James and Martin has said, in that it is the context is all, and the variability that you get across the soil landscape just adds to that complexity mm. of trying to interpret when something happened. Because the conditions of the soil will affect the decomposition of the body, in a huge way, temperature, moisture. For example, it's the aeration and the introduction of the bacteria and the fungi that decomposes the body. And that information, it varies across how deep a soil, how deep the body's been buried, whether it's been wrapped in plastic or carpet. So it's very, very difficult to predict time of death when a body's been buried or even a superficial um, burial. For example, there was a case where um, the body was recovered and it's upper half of the face was in a peaty organic horizon of a soil. So it was very, very wet, moist, and those conditions, there was complete preservation of the part of their face, while the other half was in a grit soil, so it was very well aerated, and there was complete skeletonization. And that just shows you the mm. contrast you get in conditions. So if you come across that, how on earth would mm. you predict how long that person's been there? Well, I'd say um, even within the same soil profile, I worked on one case where the, um, the head was completely skeletonized. It was um, a lady's body lying naked in a field. And um, the head was completely skeletonized. The feet, you would think, had been walking two minutes ago, mm -hmm. still nicely painted nails and everything. Mm -hmm. And that's in exactly this lying there on the same field. It's well, amazing. Why, why, did you know why that 
how that had happened or why that was the case? It was basically down, down to insects in that uh, insects usually infest the, um, the, the head the area the first. Head area first. And so they had been feeding. It was warm summer day, uh, well, warm some period. It had probably been there for just over about a week or so. And, mm -hmm. and, and we see the same phenomenon actually with bodies in water. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, again, you read the textbook and it tells you all sorts of special things about how long it takes in cold water and warm water. But actually, far more importantly, is what the predators mm -hmm. are like there. And if there's a lot of predators, then they will feed on the exposed flesh and not the protected flesh. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see people who have been in the sea for a really remarkably short time. If there are a lot of these little crustaceans, uh, shrimps and so on around and about, then they will simply feed on, uh, let's say, the hands, the head, if that's what's exposed from the protective clothing of what an immersion suit or indeed even the sort of kit that the fishermen wear out in the North Sea. Mm. And you get a similar effect in, in fires. If a body is um, being exposed to fire, then the, generally speaking, the uppermost parts of that body, so if somebody lying on their, on their front, say, for example, um, the back of that body will be exposed to, the, to the, the, the heat that's within that fire scene. So the back will get burnt very badly, but the front of the body, when you roll that body over, will be pretty much completely preserved. And it's important when you're trying to, um, say, for example, identify uh, the remains, where you're trying to give that person back their identity as to what aspects of the body has been damaged in relation to, to the incident that you're investigating. So are there, are, do, do the hands remain? And if they do, can you recover fingerprints from the hands? Um, is there a sufficiency of, of the body left that you can recover DNA? How has the dentition survived the fire scene? And dentition survives relatively well, albeit the teeth are a bit fragile afterwards. So that's the, to say things like fires or, or burial and so on, will um, destroy a lot of forensic evidence. It'll destroy evidence, but it won't certainly destroy it all. You just need to be very careful about how you retrieve that type of information, that evidence. And, and sometimes water in a soil profile can be very good at retaining the body tissue, and you get adipocere formation, and that in itself can be important in terms of the decomposition of that and leave behind traces that you can actually, if a body's been moved, you can still then look at what's been left behind in the decomposition fluid. Mm. And everyone's heard of, of dogs being used as well. It's these volatiles that are released through that decomposition. That even if a body's been removed, it's no longer there. They will leave traces of scent. Hundreds of years, we've used it in a medieval grave where you still get compounds and you still get volatiles that are indicative of there being a human decomposition. And how would you tell if a body, if a skeleton was dug up, how do you tell what age the skeleton is? I don't mean whether they're 25 or 26. How well, long, how long they've been, been there? there. Yeah. Um, quite, quite difficult, actually. Uh, there's no doubt. And again, it really pulls together a lot of expertise. From my perspective as a forensic pathologist participating in a forensic investigation, we're interested in the bodies which have forensic relevance. Now, clearly, they don't have forensic relevance if their death, however it came about, was 500 years ago. There is going to be nobody uh, to actually arrest, charge, convict, or otherwise, 500 years. 50 years, well, you know, you could conceive of a 17-year-old murdering an individual 50 years ago who would now be 67, who still is walking abroad uh, and is uh, potentially uh, uh, prosecutable for that crime. 
So less than 50 years we're very interested in, more than 100 years new. A uh, bit of a gray area between 50 and 100 years. And to be honest, the, the science again is somewhat lacking and it's been rather variable over my career uh, when we used to look at some of the immunological profile. The idea was that if you could still show human immunological markers, then it must have been relatively recently dead. I mean, of forensic interest, so within the last 50 years. But, th but that, uh, that, that has, has been shown to be false uh, since then. So you, you use archeologists and you use anthropologists yeah. and use people, and they start with simple little things like just feeling the weight of the bone and having a sniff and assessing how dry it is. But that's going to depend on the soil Absolutely. that it's been in. So now we have to have someone else who's going to participate in that. But again, there's a lot of ordinary common sense here. And I can think through a, a lifetime, a prof professional lifetime, of the number of times I've been called out to bones that have been handed in to the police station. And the first and easy part is, they're not human, in which case my interest is gone. Veterinary pathologists might be interested, but not me. And far too often, I tell you, it's the Kentucky Fried Chicken that's just been left <laughs> in the gutter. And somebody brings in, but that must be a finger. Must be a finger. Uh, we get all sorts of interesting sea mammals washed up on the beach in the, in the northeast, certainly. Um, but first of all, is it human or is it not human? Uh, and again, that's not actually as difficult as all that. And next, where was it found? Mm -hmm. You know, if it was found uh, at the site of, let's say, because this happened in London, uh, of a medieval graveyard beside the friary in <laughs> Friary Lane, which was being redeveloped, you know, there's a hint for a start <laughs> as to whether it happened in the last five years. Although the clever chappy would probably bury his body just <laughs> yeah. where he exactly. knew there was a man. Oh, yeah. that's another plot going on. Can, can I just add a little, a little bit to that? Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a, of a plug for something that Lauren and I are both involved in. At my university, at, 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 uh, at Cahead, we have forensic anthropologists, and this is their business, is looking exactly as James said, is looking at, at bones and saying, are they human, are they not? And if they are human, then what's the relevance? Are mm -hmm. they historical? or are they um, of forensic interest? And the university is putting on a massive open online course, or a MOOC, called Identifying the Dead, which is completely, utterly, totally free. I'll be doing that. So there you go. Um, <laughs> but if you go to the university website, you can see it, you can sign up for it. It's totally free, and it'll tell you about these kind of things, and the job that Laura, uh, Lorna, why do I keep calling you Laura? <laughs> I don't know. Lorna does, and the job that our forensic anthropologists do in order to try to ask or answer those questions about identifying the dead. Right, we've got 15 minutes left, and I am sure there are great questions out there. So get your hands up. This, is your, this might be for the plot of your next novel, or to prove that a plot that we've written is nonsense. Um, there's one there. Oh. oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, she you put the... Well, actually, I think we might get a lot of good questions here that would allow us to go on chatting. So I think we'll just start. Yeah, okay, there was a lady there and then a lady up there. We haven't spotted a... Oh, and then a gentleman. So that gives us three. So if you would That'll like to go the first... Hour, <laughs> All right, okay, that's fine. We'll come to you next. Sorry. It is just a quick question anyway. Uh, to ask, where did you find 69 rooms that you could burn? <laughs> well... Hmm. Did you have to pay for them? 
Uh, actually, no. Um, it was part of, I used to be part of a national training team for fire investigation. And as um, a sort of a, a, an, an alliance with that training provider, we used the, the compartments that we used for training as our test compartments for the research as well. Because we videoed everything, we, put, um, we measured the temperature inside. So it was, it was through their um, generosity that we were able to do the work. Are these and metal containers? No, no, we don't use metal yeah. containers. And you didn't have bodies in there? We had little fake bodies, but not, not real oh, bodies. What, no, bodies. No, 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 we didn't have bodies. I'm only joking. Um, You're not allowed to kill animals in crime, <laughs> crime books. I'm sorry. No, we didn't have any bodies. Um, but the, the, it, doing this kind of research work, it, the, the way that we do it is always operationally focused. So it has a real world aspect to it. We can do work in the laboratory, but the laboratory doesn't simulate real life. So what we have to do is take what we do in the lab and then apply it out into something that's much more realistic. Um, and we had the opportunity to do that. Some of my other students are doing similar sort of work over in America where the fire service will let us burn down houses and things like that, which is, they won't let us do here yet, but we're working on it. Can I, can I just take up a, a, a feature of bodies uh, and the use of bodies because it, it just brought back a flash to me of a terrible incident which occurred. Um, oh, 20 some years ago, the Aberdeen journals, these are the big newspapers of the north of Scotland, I have to say, you'll never have heard of them down here, but we get all our news from, from, from there and the causes of death are usually published before I've started the post-mortem and so on. <laughs> Valuable resource. Anyway, they phoned me up one day to ask me if I had ever been asked to give bodies to the motor car manufacturers so that they could test what happened to bodies in car crashes. I said, don't be ridiculous, what are you talking about? And so they assured me that the executive car manufacturers in Germany had got hold of real dead bodies to put in their cars so that they could test uh, their, their various computer models and so on and so forth. I had to witheringly say, but well, what a complete waste of time. For starters, the dead body in a car, for example, that's involved in an accident, is in no way the same as a living body. And indeed, when you start to examine an individual who's been involved in a road traffic collision, one of the things that's a sort of a giveaway as to the possibility that the individual has been at least unconscious at the time that the accident has occurred is the absence mm -hmm. of major external injury because they don't see what's happening happening and they don't actually make any reaction to it. So if you see yourself about to hit that tree, you'll brace your arms against the steering wheel, feet hard down on the pedals, and as a result, the force is transmitted through your limbs and they break. Whereas if you're actually dead because you've been overcome at the wheel or whatever, then you just go with the car. So using dead bodies, using corpses, is not a particularly realistic uh, model. Moreover, and we've already spoken about it, biology is so variable that everybody's different. And how many big, heavy people or little, tiny people do you have to put in these cars to validate what you've got? But rather more importantly, I said to them, the great thing is that the model already exists because sadly, tragically, people go out there and do it for you. They drive their cars in certain ways and they end up in certain circumstances. And really all you need is thorough documentation mm -hmm. of the injuries that they have. And there's a huge resource that you can actually tap into to discover uh, whether you've got your models right. We don't need 
any such nonsense as giving bodies away so that motor car manufacturers can crash cars it's with a, them. It's a bit Birkin here, that, is it not? <laughs> it is, isn't it? It, is, know, it, it is exactly is. There's one area where, where it has been used, and it's a, a colleague out in uh, the States, um, and you can make of this what you will, where um, donated bodies have been used in fire death research, where the body has been put into a compartment, a room, and then that room set on fire, because bodies in fires move a lot. Um, and because of the, the way in which the, the, the musculature and so on is affected by the heat, and so that they can flex their arms, they can in some circumstances sit up um, in the midst of this, even though the person is deceased. And in that case, the research has got some relevance, but I, I tend to absolutely agree with you, James, that in many cases there's, there's not a, a necessity to do this kind of work. And in many cases, I think that pigs can act as absolutely. reasonable surrogates. However, again, there are times, for example, understanding which volatiles are indicative of the human body and not, say, pig mm. um, analogous compounds. So that's, a, for example, in America, they're able to do a Tennessee experiments mm. with donated bodies in different semi-buried, buried um, Is that the, the farm? Yes. Body yes. farm. Uh -huh. yeah. I don't know. They may not know about the farm. Would you like to say a bit about it? It's something um, that we, we've worked on um, with entomology. Uh, my former PhD student, Amaret Whitaker, um, had a project where we compared pig bodies with human bodies. Again, these are donated human bodies um, at the so-called body farm in Tennessee. And um, we, we did six replicates and uh, replicated pairs and uh, could find no statistical difference between, um, between pigs and humans in, in terms of the insect fauna. There could well be differences in other more subtle clues, but for insects, we're very happy to use pigs as surrogates. And the same in fire research, we've done a project where we've looked at um, the volatile components as um, bodies burn, and there's no appreciable difference apart from one slight one between human bodies and, and, and pig models. Um, but areas of, uh, the whole area of, of a body farm is very controversial. Yeah, the, the business about the, uh, one wee story about the pigs, the, the young woman who I spoke about at the beginning who went off to become a forensic scientist and um, during the training uh, they went to something, I think it was in Manchester or Birmingham, a group of them and they had a lot of fun with a pig and hitting a pig to get the blood spatters and they ended up in the pub discussing this with great animation this, uh, and then turned around to find that everybody had moved a great deal away from them <laughs> and their enthusiasm. Okay, we could have another, yeah, the lady that put her hand up first, that'd be nice there, thanks. And there was a, yeah, yeah, I've spotted you, I'll remember you. Uh, hello, I'd like to ask two quick questions about fingerprints. I enjoy the books of Cynthia Harrod Eagles, and she's the only person I've come across who actually calls them finger marks. I heard you use the same term, so I'll be interested to know the difference. And also, quickly, I've just finished reading a book where the whole defence rested on the number of point similarity in, in fingerprints. Uh, and it was in Boston, and they were getting their knickers in a right <laughs> twist about it because apparently they had to close the whole fingerprint thing between 2004 and 2006. So this, this point difference, because on CSI, 
They just, <laughs> they just blend together. That seems to be very straightforward. If you could help me with those, that would be lovely. Thank sure. you. You know CSI is not real, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, fingerprints and finger marks. Fingerprints are, 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 the, are taken from people that you know. So if you take a suspect or anybody and you produce a set of representations of their fingerprints, then they're called fingerprints. Finger marks are unknown origin marks, essentially. So if, if an unknown person left a mark on this table, but, and I don't know what the identity of that person is, then that's a finger mark. So that's the difference between them. And a beautiful surface, too, for leaving it's a fantastic. finger mark on. And there's quite a few, <laughs> yeah. in actual fact. Um, so so that's, that's why. So we would call um, marks that are recovered from crime scenes, until they're identified, we call them fin finger marks. And you do an identification between, or sorry, a comparison between a finger mark and a fingerprint, fingerprint being the known one. So that's what the difference is. Um, in terms of points of comparison, it's an interesting one because when you go way back, um, 100 plus years ago, when um, a gentleman called Bertillon was looking at the way in which fingerprints could be identified and could be, could be individualized. And they looked at the characteristics that you see in whirls or in arches or in whatever it is. Um, and they suggested that one of the ways of comparison was by counting the, the, uh, the different um, types of characteristics that were within the ridge detail of a fingerprint. Um, and that was a way that was used for many, many years and still is used in many countries around the world today. In the UK, we abandoned that methodology um, I don't know when, about four or five years ago, I think, yes. um, where uh -huh. it was thought that in actual fact the, the, way, the better way in which the comparison could be done was looking at specific characteristics for their presence or absence, but not putting a defining number on it to yeah. be able to say this is a representation of this person's fingerprint. So we don't use a, a numerical standard anymore. We use a simple comparison to say, and the opinion of the individual person who's doing the comparison to say whether or not the marks or print could be from one and the same individual. And they all, it's not only one person that looks at it. That's right. It? Yeah. 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 It's more than one person. A wee yeah. funny story about that. I do events with R2S. They all know we turn to scene in Aberdeen and um, they do a thing on fingerprints, but they put this print up on a big screen and it's the print of a, a housebreaker in Aberdeen who couldn't figure out why he kept getting caught. And the fingerprint right in the middle of it has got two eyes and a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> and that was real and That'd true. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, 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 you, if you're interested, if you go onto Google and look at, um, there's a really good resource under the um, National Institute for Justice that you can download, it's completely free. And it takes you through how people do fingerprint and finger mark comparison. Um, and similarly, if you look at material that's produced out by the Home Office, um, and again, just, just type in and Google it and look for the fingerprint manual, um, and it'll give you loads of information about fingerprints, mm. finger marks, and the comparison. Very good. As There's a gentleman, yeah. sorry. I was going to say, as, as Neil was saying, fingerprinting has come under a lot of scrutiny in it the last has come few under years. And I was quite interested. I've just finished reading my first Val McDermott novel, uh, Cross and Burn, and, and one of the main characters in there um, almost dismisses some fingerprint evidence, you know, so it's, it's obviously been taken up by crime writers very yeah. much now, the problems. We try problems. and keep ahead of the game. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and also um, marks and prints, similarly for footwear, 
can be used, partial prints, it seems, and again, it's the same as... Yeah. They're, they're not a database of... Uh, yeah. 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 Well, databases of footwear is much more difficult because footwear is transient. You know, we all... Well, not me, because I never change my shoes. I like to wear them to death. But um, the, 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 foot pr the shoe prints that you see yeah. are very fashion conscious. They're very time of year. Um, relative, so that so that yeah. that database has to be updated all the time. All the time. But so it's it's more compare a comparison with your footwear. If you're yeah. a suspect that's been at a crime scene, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a gentleman here. <coughs> oh, and you got one there. Okay. Hi, I've got a dead body under a tree, and it's been there for six months. Is this in your garden? <laughs> <laughs> I know who she is and how she got there and what she died of. What I need is how she's going to be identified and she's not reported missing. So can you tell me from your point of view how that how can help that, please? Who, me? Well, actually, you've, you've identified the difficulty to start with. The easiest and best start point is to know who might be missing mm -hmm. and to be able to compare. But thereafter, um, it, it really is a sort of a, a, a deductive process. So, for example, uh, is it male or female? Is it adult or is it child? What age? And there are many, many uh, features. Uh, forensic anthropologists, be truthful, forensic pathologists of a certain age will do it as well, uh, because we learned a lot of anatomy when we were at medical school. Um, you know, <laughs> what, what, uh, what are, are the characteristics that will give away uh, certain uh, physical characteristics. And you can then go on and on and on. I mean, even to uh, movable uh, items like clothing. Uh, teeth, dental records, uh, medical records, and that becomes harder and harder when you don't know who you're looking for. But these are all in it. And then Lorna will tell you about uh, some of the stuff that they do at the Hutton Institute where they look at the composition, the elemental composition of the bone that uh, allows you to to actually track where somebody has eaten in the last sort of yeah. 300 years or whatever. <laughs> Using the, what is called stable isotope analysis, what you eat is reflected in the composition. And if you take a part of your hair, for example, along that length of the hair, there'll be a different isotopic signature that reflects the food and the water that you've drunk on that journey that that hair has grown. So that can be used to ascertain where you've been. And different parts of the bones, different parts of the teeth can tell where you've there's even a bone, a special bone, isn't it, that tells you when you um, actually, when you were in your mother's womb. Yes, it's up in your head. Huh. It's in your head. <laughs> so you can look at that. But, but, but before you go to that, you've got things like distinguishing marks as well. A bit of my finger missing. Well, that would be looked at. It's things you write in your passport. Um, if you've got a tattoo, these can all be traced back as well yeah. that can be helped to identify mm -hmm. who that person is. You want, you want to go and do our MOOC, identifying yeah. the dead, see? Months is she won't have any skin left, I presume. And oh, well, no, I wouldn't say that at no, all. No, no. Oh, thank no, you. No. That's <laughs> what I need. I need, I need this conversation. Oh, well, this conversation. We'll have this conversation later. You, you come and seek me out, and I'll tell <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Excellent. I uh, came across a brilliant three part documentary series on YouTube about the founding of an integrated national Scottish. Forensic Science Service, when apparently there used to be seven, eight, nine, ten different regional services. Um, does the panel have anything to say as to whether or not, because I don't know whether the UK has got, uh, or in England should I say, uh, an, an integrated forensic service. Um, has there been any kind of communication between the, the unified Scottish Forensic Service uh, south of the border? 
I'll just switch my thing off now. I, think <laughs> I was told that I hadn't to speak about. <laughs> no. Um, the, the, what's happened up in Scotland is that there were four forensic science laboratories. They were all under the same um, governance in that they were all part of the same organisation and they were amalgamated into um, one large laboratory, which is at a place called Garkosh, and there's a couple of satellite labs. So it's not that there were a whole lot of dis different forensic science laboratories under different governance. It was, it was, um, it was one organisation that just sort of came together in one place. Um, the situation in England and Wales is far, far different. Um, up until about 2012, mm -hmm. there was one organisation that was government-funded, which was called the Forensic Science Service, but there were a number of commercially, um, uh, com other commercial um, forensic science providers, so companies that would, would provide forensic science to the police um, for payment. It would, the FSS Forensic Science Service was closed in 2012, um, and that has created in England and Wales a com completely commercialised marketplace. So it's the only country in the world where forensic services are paid for in that way, in a commercial market, um, by the police forces. So part of what has occurred is that the police forces are doing more of their forensic work within their own organisations. They've set up their own forensic laboratories, um, a little bit like the way it was about 20, 30 years ago. Um, and they do mainly DNA, fingerprints, they do some shoe print or, or footwear mark work and so on. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult marketplace, I think, in, in, in England and Wales in terms of just how forensic science is organised. You also then have um, people who are based in academia or, or in the museums, mm. um, like Martin, and we get called in really on the cases that have got some more esoteric uh, aspect to it that's not more routine. I don't know, Martin, if you want to... to yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. Um, when I first started working, I worked a lot with the Forensic Science Service, and one of the things, the work I do is mainly dealing with murders and so forth, quite high-profile cases, and uh, we were trying to see if there was any commercial way of having um, insects involved in a um, sort of a, a, a much more um, a sort of um, factory-line type forensic inquiry in the same way that fingerprints and DNA now is, but we couldn't really come up with an insect angle for that, so we're still very much a, a niche market dealing with... Um, you know, high-profile murders and so forth. So uh, the, the museum, where we work, we, we work with the police directly, but also with the uh, commercial providers that you talk about. Um, and, yeah, it is a very complicated um, scenario now, and particularly with um, cuts in government funding uh, for policing, etc. It's an issue that hasn't been talked about because it's not very sexy, but mm -hmm. yeah, actually that again came up in the, the Val McDermott book about the the cuts in funding for forensics and how the Tony Hill, the um, profiling person, was really a luxury that many police forces couldn't afford now. Um, mm. And it is a real issue yeah. today. Yeah, I, I learned about that because Emma Hart works down in London. She worked for the Forensic Science Centre and then, right. of course, it shut down. So uh, the one thing she said to me at the time was she was very worried about... Uh, they had the opportunity there to really um, look at things that might happen, look at advance, the sort of move the thing forward, because, but if it's commercially orientated, you're not, you're not going to be allowed to, you know, the no. thing has to be paid for, whatever it is you're doing, rather than the research that you mm. might be doing. That was her concern. I don't mm. know whether that's played out. Well, now there's a lot of 
type specialist niche analyses, for example, some aspects of mitochondrial hair analysis is sent to America. Mm. You know, it's, it's is really a shame. The U is this from is England? This from England? Yeah. And it, it also splits a case to bits because in the, in the past, I think, James, you, met, you mentioned it in the past, and what we could do is, is work as a team yeah. and look at tackling both the, the pathology side but also the, the, the more scientific forensic evidence side. Um, as a group of scientists and pathologists working together within the confines and context of that particular case. What happens now is, in England and Wales certainly it, it, it's different in Scotland, but what happens now is that um, different commercial providers are sent bits of cases, so a case is fragmented. Um, so Lorna might get, get um, to do a bit of bloodstain work from a bloodstain cut out of a garment. I might get to do the DNA profile of that bloodstain. And what you're doing is you're deconvoluting the evidence, you're splitting the evidence apart, so that all we can do as the scientists is tell you, you know, what that DNA evidence might produce, not put it back into the context of the set of circumstances that case um, pertains to. And that's really difficult from yeah. a scientific perspective. And back to I, your, your question about being Scotland, yeah. that that's one of the advantages because of the size of the country. It's because the, the Police Scotland is now one administrative mm. unit. Um, it, it may be argued that there are advantages, disadvantages, but the benefit of that, along with the centralised um, forensic science provision and the policing at Gartkosh, was yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and we've got the Crown involved. So we've got from the crime scene mm -hmm. to the crime scene, right the way to court. We're integrated in Scotland. And also oh, a, very, a very strong I research base. I can't allow this to go without <laughs> <laughs> just a tiny note of scepticism from somebody that's been operating in the system for decades. We have to have a stouchy. That's what they came for. They want blood, don't they? they Gore, you know. Um, all I would say in recognition is that the Forensic Science Service of the United Kingdom, it's which brilliant. was England and Wales, was a very, very highly regarded organisation mm. internationally. Yes. Now, I can't speak for Her Majesty's government or for police forces in England and Wales, but internationally, when I would go to the United States, they thought the Forensic Science Service mm -hmm. was yeah, brilliant. I <laughs> and I, I have to say, yes, just a little bit of scepticism, always about centralisation. It's terribly easy to say, oh, Scotland's got a population of five million people, which is about the same as Yorkshire. And if Yorkshire is only one centre, why should Scotland not? Well, there are geographical reasons that Scotland cannot be dealt with uh, just quite so easily. But the piece that I miss most since they tried to centralise, and it's, by the way, not completely centralised, mm -hmm. is I miss the team the team that I started speaking about, the team that is actually so critically important. For a quarter of a century after I went back to uh, the University of Aberdeen, I knew exactly who I would meet at three o'clock in the morning in some alien place about 65 miles from my house. We all knew one another extremely well and we got on very, very well. It was very easy to make these contacts and to actually talk about the case. And I have to say that I think that quite a lot has been lost especially for those of us who work peripherally, mm -hmm. who don't actually work within a 10 or 12 mile radius of Gart Kosh. Mm -hmm. I, I know this geography doesn't mean much to many but of you. I would disagree. I think there is a very strong team but there, ethos in what, Scotland. Yes, but it's not in Scotland. I want it in Aberdeen. <laughs> <laughs> See, it would have been different if they said we'll centralise it to Aberdeen, again. clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, you know, Note of scepticism. 
don't, don't just spoil <laughs> things all of a sudden because yeah. of a woman, particularly because there seems to be a commercial sensitivity. Yeah. The, the issue is to work out what it is that you want to achieve and to work out how best to achieve it. And there are undoubtedly certain things that are best done by niche people mm. because they're not widespread mm -hmm. in their expertise. But there are other things which are really perfectly common uh, and are going to happen often in yeah. lots of places. And you should, yeah. Keep, yeah. You should yeah. keep them there. So first of all, think about what it is you want. Work out what you can pay for it, and then start to develop a model which takes all of that into consideration. Well, I would say, you know, crime writers tend to keep that little team, even though yeah. it, it doesn't, it is not realistic. I mean, there'll be 100, mm. 150, 200 officers are in the case. We can't write a book with that. <laughs> so whoever we create, and, you know, Ro Rona's little gang is a little gang, just like you're mm. talking about. And, you know, each but, but then there is reality, because we yeah. have had that little yes, gang. Yes, of course we yes. have. Yes. Uh, there we go. It's on there. I don't know if I've got anybody over this size. How are we doing for time? Oh, one more question, maybe two at the most. One more question and Grieve doesn't answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one sentence answers and no more stooshies on stage. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Very interesting and educational discussion and a bit of a confession time that I've <laughs> Not always been good at choosing my friends very wisely. <laughs> One of my erstwhile school friends was a gentleman who you are probably familiar by the name of Roger Severs, who is currently enjoying a diet of porridge in Sussex for battering both his parents to death. <sighs> nice guy. What I wondered, I believe part of the case was that having battered his parents to death, he buried them in the local wood. And I believe some residue from the wood was actually attached to the car, whether that be soil, minerals or whatever. And that is what finally led him to enjoying the rest of his time in Sussex. Would you be able to comment on the sort of chemistry as to how that is um, determined and how it's actually proven? I, I didn't work on that case, so I've sure. uh, yeah. no connection with it whatsoever. But in principle, what would happen would be the soil at the particular locus of the crime would be looked at, as would samples taken from the vehicle or footwear of the suspect. And it would be looked at in terms of the mineralogy, the organic matter, and perhaps even some of the insects, for example, mm. within that particular body that was transferred from the crime scene to the vehicle or the person who had allegedly been at that scene of the crime. So that would be compared in terms of these multiple characteristics with the sample if it was on the vehicle or on his footwear. And they would be then presented in court, presumably, and there would be an opinion given as to whether that had likely come from that particular place or not. Soils are continuous, and I would never say that it's, it's not a categoric type of evidence, because as you can imagine, the soil here will be slightly different to the soil over there, even 10 metres away. And actually, by virtue of removing that soil, it will be changing the soil that you're actually comparing it with. So it will never be, never ever be 100%, unless you find a bit of stone that's been fractured, and you can put that stone together. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll have to come to a close, won't we? And I'm very sorry about that, because I'm having a great time up here. Uh, <laughs> Just a big, if you'd like to give a round of applause for our
if you could just uh, give us a moment to waltz down the aisle there. Uh, I'll be in the signing tent if you're interested in the latest Rona McLeod novel. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.